Oh, Father in heaven, we rejoice and we take great pleasure in worshiping your holy name this day. And as we think through what you have taught us in your scriptures, we recount your deeds even today. This world was spoken into existence by the word of your power. It came into be, and all that we see and all that we can explore is here by virtue of your creative and sustaining word. It was through Christ that this world was created, and so we recount the deeds of your great power in setting this world and this universe into motion. Lord, it was by your great deed and power that a way of salvation was made for man prophesied all the way back in the garden, that there would be one, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. It was by your power that the Red Seas were parted, that you led your people, Lord, into the wilderness, through the wilderness, into the promised land, by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. It was by the word of your power that you spoke according to your word through your prophets that a Messiah would come and would be himself the propitiation for the sins of your people. And John the Baptist came announcing the Lamb of God. Behold, He is here, the one who takes away the sin of the world. And we recount your deeds and power in the incarnation of Jesus Christ our Lord. God become man in flesh, here to dwell, who lived, proclaimed, died, was buried, became the sacrifice, in so doing for our sin, was resurrected, ascended before the Father, received a kingdom, and now rules and reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high until every enemy is put in subjection under His feet. And we recount finally this morning that we, Your people, have been placed under subjection to You. And we have been, Lord Jesus, succumbed to Your power by Your great pursuing, effective grace. Your Spirit has subdued us with the love of Jesus Christ, sanctifying us in process, justifying us once and for all by the shed blood of Christ and one day glorifying us, raising us from the dead, all who are in Christ today unto newness of life. And so we recount your deeds. And now as we turn our attention to your holy word, Jesus Christ, We thank you that it has been preserved for us. I pray that our affections would value its worth today and that our heart and our mind would be open to comprehend and to appreciate its truths. And I pray that the fruit of this service today would equip your people for the work of the ministry, heralding the gospel beyond these walls. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What a privilege we have only to look in church history, including in the Word and in subsequent eras, to realize the great privilege that we have today to gather freely as the people of God and to participate in this assembly in the worship of Jesus Christ, our Almighty Savior and Lord. This morning I was thinking again about the provisions of the weather, this place, each other, and again the relative freedom that we have And I thought about the times in ages past where, say, the Scottish Covenanters would gather in what was called their conventicles, illegal meetings, because the state opposed their worship. And they would sometimes stand on frozen rivers between one nation and another and gather as the people of God to hear the word of Christ shivering in the cold and with the threat of being betrayed and then arrested, then condemned, 
burned at the stake, and so many different things that may happen on account of their faithful gathering in Jesus' name. I share that with you this morning just to underscore the value of what we have today. It is this meeting and our appreciation of God's gift to us and grace to us to gather as His people. Is it worth the suffering that those generations prior went through in order to have the great value of worshiping together? Yes, it is. So in honor of their legacy, and most of all in honor of what Jesus Christ has done for us, Let us conform our hearts and affections to the great joy and privilege of opening His Word today. I'd encourage you to do that with me by turning to Matthew 24. We will continue in our Matthew series today. We are in the middle of Matthew, or the fifth discourse, Jesus' fifth discourse in Matthew. That's been set apart in kind of a structurally specific way, along with four others that have preceded it. And the theme of this discourse we've identified could be perhaps labeled kingdom consequences. We mentioned last time we were in this passage, then verses 32 through 34, excuse me, backing up a little bit more, and verses 30 through uh, 31, we see that there is authority demonstrated, and there is authority received by Jesus, and there's authority trumpeted through the people who as, uh, will go and announce the gospel call and thereby the Spirit will use that means to gather in the elect from the four winds and so on. So in the scheme of Matthew's, the structure of his gospel, and according to the themes that he has detailed and underscored, we see the kingdom of God coming to the fore time and again. And in this final section, installment of kingdom teaching in Matthew's gospel, We see the consequences, the authority, and in some ways the sanctions of judgment that fall on those who ignore, despise, refuse to surrender and submit to the King of Kings. So this morning, with your Bible open to Matthew 24, 32 through 51, I invite you to stand out of reverence for the reading of the Word of God and let us and follow along as I declare God's holy, immutable, and infallible Word this day. Again, Matthew 24, 32. Our Lord tells us the following. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near and at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away But my words will not pass away. 36. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. As in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed, and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces, and put him with the hypocrites. In that day there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The title of this morning's message comes from verses 42 and 43. The twice-repeated imperative for the disciples, simply two words, stay awake. As we explore the context of this passage today, we find that the final structured discourse in Matthew is divided between two, uh, two sections that are distinct in some ways. The first section could be uh, summarized as a litany of specific catastrophic signs of judicial reckoning prophesied about over the old order, the temple itself, the events that took place there, and those of the religious elite like scribes and Pharisees and those they represented who stood in contradiction to the kingdom of God in their apostasy, their idolatry, and their refusal to acknowledge Him as their Messiah. In Matthew 24, we open this passage, this oracle in verse 3, with these words, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? Of course, in reference to the destruction of the temple we had just referred to. Then he proceeds to answer the question by saying, among other things, in verse 6, You will hear of wars, rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. He goes on to describe famines, earthquakes, the beginning of what he describes as birth pangs. He says that there will be pressures, mounting, persecution, abounding, abomination of desolation, a circumstance of such dire emergency that you shouldn't return to your house to gather any of your belongings, but when you see these signs, flee to the hills. He says that the devastation will be obvious as the corpses are strewn about the land and the carnage is marked by circling vultures overhead. He says that these days are fraught with danger and peril of every kind, not just physical well-being, but also spiritual health. There will be false Christs, false prophets that would lead many astray and if possible even deceive the elect. He talks about a tribulation where the sun is dark and the moon does not give its light. Signs appear in heaven and the Son of Man will come on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call and gather His elect from the four winds. So we have this litany, this catalog of spectacular, dramatic, graphic signs of what will happen when this day of reckoning arrives, this coming of the Lord in judgment on that generation that so deserved it again because of their apostasy, their idolatry, ultimately their rejection of the gospel. But today our text represents a shift in the theme and the context. Uh, In this case, Jesus moves from identifying these specific signs to application points and preparation for these very events. We see this in the first sort of parabolic language or analogy or illustration that he uses in verse 32. The beginning of our text today reads, From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So that's an indication of when and what to look for so that you can be alert, so that you can, according to the title of this message, stay awake, not be caught flat-footed and red-handed at the day of Christ's uh, reckoning. Today's text thus marks a transition in Jesus' admonition and instruction to His disciples and begins to focus their attention on timing and application. Jesus answers this question, How ought His disciples live in light of these soon-arriving events? The answer is, in two words, stay awake, but He expounds that. The answer is a heightened and a consistent sense of historical and spiritual watchfulness. Watch for these events, but watch over your souls at the same time. And indeed, watch over the souls of others. Share the good news of the gospel, the only way of salvation. The only refuge under these circumstances is found in me, that is, in Christ. Though much of this chapter has certainly come to pass, I would submit to you in the ransacking of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, as we see specific reference to events, as I say, in history, this exhortation is presently relevant for us. This exhortation is relevant for us, His church, today. After all, we can see clearly through the whole testimony of the New Testament that we ourselves are to stay awake and to serve Him consistently in our meantime anticipating Christ's second coming, His return in final, consummate glory. You see, there was increment or there was uh, incidents of Christ's return in one sense, or the coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, or the arrival in judgment that we see actually all through the Scriptures. There's prophetic uh, moments through the course of redemptive history that signal God's uh, appointment, His scheduled arrival to do something in particular intervene on behalf graciously in His favor for His people, and in many cases judge the apostate, the rebellious, and His enemies. Oftentimes at the same time, Jesus is prophesying historically of a moment such as this where the temple itself will soon be destroyed and the whole political and social and religious order of the old covenant goings on will be totally destroyed. It will be wiped as it were off the face of the map. Why? Well, in part, the answer is theological, primarily, I would say. It's because God will not suffer any longer any blasphemous sacrifices that say, we need to keep slaughtering the blood of bulls and goats because the Lamb of God, the Messiah, has not yet come. He had come. And proof of His coming would be the destruction of the old order that denied that Jesus Christ had come. That Daniel's 70 weeks had been fulfilled. That the Lamb of God was there and no longer relevant was, therefore, the blood of bulls and goats and calves and the like. Why? Because the blood of Christ Himself had been shed. Infinitely superior in its power, in its efficacy, in its value. As Hebrews 9 tells us, and we've learned recently, the old day of atonement with the, where the sinful high priest would go in and intercede for the people. He himself was a sinner and he could only account for the intent, unintentional sins of the people. Yet Christ, the ultimate high priest the sinless Lamb of God, without spot and blemish. He came in the perfect fulfillment, fullness of time and offered His own blood, which is effective unto eternal redemption. In our meantime, as we await His second coming, we find that our text today has relevance for us. And it makes use of Christ in this message, makes use of three or so analogies, which could be summarized 
by the following purpose statement. These are illustrations to bolster believers with understanding, courage, faithfulness, and patience as well while portending final judgment and destruction for scoffers. Again, so these illustrations, they serve a purpose for His disciples at that time for us. Yet today, I would submit to you, they are there to bolster our understanding, our courage, our faithfulness, our patience, while they also proclaim the fear of the Lord by foretelling, by prophesying final destruction and judgment for scoffers, which yet stands as an oracle today in the second coming and the final judgment, which is still outstanding. This pattern is repeated in chapter 25 in the parable section of this discourse. This pattern is also broadly significant for history itself. And in Before we transition to look at this in a little more detail, let us just be thankful to the Lord for His equipping Word informing us under harsh conditions and in every stage of history who is sovereign, what to expect, and what He, His people, we, His people, should do. Here's a heading for you this morning, followed by three points to explore our text in a little bit more depth and detail. The heading is, Jesus prepares His disciples using three analogies. Jesus prepares His disciples for these soon-arriving events using three analogies. The first is a fig tree. The second is a reference to the days of Noah. And the third is household management, if you will. Fig tree covers verses 32 through 35. The days of Noah, approximately verses 36 through 41. And then the final analogy, household management, verses 42 through 51. So let's consider how Jesus prepares His disciples using the fig tree picture illustration or analogy. First of all, I want to remind you before we dig into verses 32 through 35 that he has already employed the imagery of fig tree back in chapter 21. Turn to Matthew 21 with me and I think our message today as for the relevance and illustration of the fig tree in Matthew 24 will be even more clear when it's taken alongside his prior use of this picture. In Matthew 21, 18, we have this record. In the morning, as he, Christ, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This I've called the first lesson of the fig tree. Why? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus says in verse 32, from the fig tree learn its lesson. So if you will, in the course of this uh, chapter in Jesus' ministry, there's two fig tree lessons. The first one uh, comes to us by way of Matthew 21, verses 18 through 23, and it relates some specific ideas about what is to come. The the, uh, fig tree picture is used in two different ways in the broader scope of Jesus' teaching during this phase of the ministry. But both of these examples illustrates events, illustrate events surrounding the old temple order. 
Think closely about what is pictured here in verse 19. When Jesus sees only leaves on the fig tree, but no fruit, he finds cause to curse it. I submit to you that this is a picture. It is symbolic. It is teaching and foreshadowing some of what he would lay out in his discourse that followed. In other words, how does this picture relate to the circumstances at hand? Well, in part, I think the following could be said. The Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees, those who are merely faithful externally, but as he described, were, in fact, whitewashed tombs full of dead man's bones, had leaves, they had apparent growth, they had apparent thriving life on the surface. But when you looked more closely, indeed it was just window dressing, it was deceptive, it was external form, it was the outside, not the inside, there was no fruit. The quintessential picture or uh, application of this idea of fig trees with no fruit, I submit to you, would be the scribes and the Pharisees, which he goes on to condemn. He says in chapters following, chapter 23 to be specific, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for seven different things. Among them, he says, you are like whitewashed tombs, which what outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness. Another way of saying, outwardly, appear fruitful, after all, like a fig tree who has leaves, but on closer examination, there is no substance, there is no fruit. This is the first lesson of the fig tree. Jesus goes on to say that, and uh, goes on to attach this idea of confidence, and as we've stated, the purpose in his fifth dis- discourse, in part to provide understanding, courage, faithfulness, and patience to his disciples. He associates this power, this authority that he exercised over the fig tree by delegation with his disciples. That is to say that Jesus is passing along, he is, de- uh, he is uh, uh, commissioning them, he is giving them, granting them, delegating them authority similar to what he has just symbolically represented here. In other words, that which you proclaim in my name will as assuredly come to pass When you speak according to my word, as what has been accomplished before your eyes this day in the cursing of the fig tree. Jesus uh, is teaching several things during this phase. He's explaining in part in Matthew 21, 18 through 23, through this first lesson of the fig tree, the fate of those who trust in themselves and in empty formalism. He's calling out the window dressing of deceptive hypocrisy that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, and all who rebelled against his kingdom sought to justify themselves with and hide behind. But he himself sees right through the facade and with the word of his judgment declares it exactly what it is and also declares that it will be punished, it will receive sanctions and reckoning in due course. That's the first lesson of the fig tree. With that in mind, and moving back to our primary text today, consider the second lesson of the fig tree, or you could say chapter 2, further a picture. And verse 32 again, from the fig tree, learn its lesson, Jesus says, recalling the same imagery. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. There is a timing awareness associated with this second picture. As to the first lesson, the events prophesied 
in uh, chapter 21, they're represented, or uh, excuse me, that as to the, uh, the lesson here, what is pictured by this new spring growth or what is to be associated with this new spring growth that the tree is coming into uh, a new season are the events that preceded this declaration or this analogy. He says, from the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches have become tender and put out its leaves, you know that the summer is near. In other words, how will you know when the season is changing and these events are upon you? When you see the wars and rumors of wars, when you begin to sense the birth pangs, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you witness the great tribulation, when you see these things happening, the false claims and the deceivers abounding, you know that the fig tree is coming into its own and that the time is near. But taking the two pictures together, we can see that this fig tree that appears to be blossoming will then be condemned. So Matthew 21 gives us the fate of the fig tree, and Matthew 24 indicates the time of the events. A timing awareness as to the first lesson, the events prophesied, are represented by the new spring growth on this tree, which would be followed by the cursing of the tree pictured in lesson one. So as we put two and two together, we see that Jesus is speaking through these imageries prophetically. He's preaching um, about actual events that will happen, and he's preparing his disciples to be aware, to stay awake, to analyze the circumstances around them, and to address them accordingly. He also says that this tree can be expected to come into bloom, as it were, before this generation passes away. He says in verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Then he continues, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. There is much debate on this issue, on this uh, topic of timing and the events that are recorded here. And I'm sure you're familiar with maybe some of the most popular interpretations, uh, such as all of these events in Matthew 24 speak of a time and future yet to come. I fall in the camp that sees most of them, in fact, fulfilled, yes indeed, within the generation, in the hearing of Christ, when he prophesied these words. That is the clearest in my understanding of secondary sources that I read commenting on the original language. That is the clearest understanding of the context. However, again, remember the premise of our message today and in fact all of the scriptures. Though the primary application referred to events that in some cases throughout history have already passed. The word of God is quick and powerful. It is always relevant And the exhortation to stay awake and to serve Him in difficult circumstances and to be prepared by being quickened through the Scriptures to courage, faithfulness, and patience always stands for God's people. And so we see the lesson of the fig tree, uh, both the first lesson and the second lesson applying in that sense to us today. But finally, in this section of the fig tree, Let me pause for a moment on verse 35, because here Jesus refers to a point of reference so that we are never confused or so that we don't become deceived, distracted, and we lose our faith 
become totally discouraged or derailed during these difficult and pressing times such as they appeared at the time of his declaration, perhaps around the events of A.D. 70. Again, verse 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. If we turn over to other passages within New Testament, this theme is, uh, is restated in numerous ways and in numerous places. One more example is a great cross-reference that communicates this same sense of urgency and an appeal to confidence is in Hebrews 12, 25 through 27. In similar language, the author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that are made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Let me turn to one more cross-reference. Follow the, me there, if you wish, in Second Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This admonition, this exhortation, is repeated a third time. In as many words, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, the apostle says, beloved, in both of them, I am stirring up you, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Pause there for a moment. Notice the authoritative appeal to which all three references refer. In this case, it's the word of God. Uh, and the language that Peter uses to underscore this is the holy commandments, the commandment of the Lord, and, or the holy prophets, the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and his apostles. In the case of Hebrews chapter 12, it is he who has spoken from heaven. At the beginning of Hebrews, we see that in, uh, in prior ages, he has spoken through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son, it goes on to say, he himself sits at the right hand of the majesty on high in the heavens, as it were. So in both cases, it's an appeal. Listen to the word of Christ. That is the point of reference. Heaven and earth are transient and fickle. The things of your human experience, your environment, your circumstances, what has happened in the course of events that, that change at any given time is very fluid, dynamic, and cannot be trusted. But there is a point of reference upon which your understanding, your confidence, your faithfulness, your patience can hinge. What is it? Jesus himself says, my words will not pass away. It is the word of Jesus Christ that is the ultimate point of reference for understanding. It is the worldview presuppositions, if you, if you will. It is the first truth that must be affirmed in order for the rest of challenging, difficult circumstances, experiences, claims to truth, false ideologies, religions, philosophies, anything of the kind can be rightly understood and discerned. The word of Christ, the voice that echoes from heaven, the holy prophets of old, the commandment of our Lord and Savior delivered, applied, and proclaimed through His apostles. Second Peter 3, 3. 
knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. In context, let me submit to you the supplies in our day in, in manifold ways. But in context, let me submit to you, how do you know a scoffer is a scoffer? If they proffer a different point of reference. I was listening to Albert Moeller give a great message on how to understand and interpret the Bible. Among the phrases he used, I found one to be particularly helpful and powerful. He said, we need a hermeneutic of submission, not suspicion. We need, that is to say, when we consider the Word of God, to consider it as the Word of God. When Christ speaks, we submit. When the holy prophets utter their oracle, we listen and we surrender to its authority. When those of, the gods, uh, of Christ's commissioned apostles proclaim the gospel in all its glorious truth, we listen and we learn as the humble servant and disciple, the learner under discipline. We are not to be suspicious. I wonder if this is truly the word of God. On the basis of empiricism, my experience, you know, historical experts, uh, academics in this field or or that field or the latest ideas of scientific discovery, I think the word of God might come into question on this point or that point or the other point. Let me submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this point of view is the point of view of the scoffer. The scoffer himself will come in the last days, as the scriptures say. Why? To shake our faith and our confidence and to remove from underneath the faithful and even the elect, Jesus says, if they could, the foundation underneath their firm conviction that God is, God is real. He has spoken. His words are preserved. The Bible is authoritative, inerrant, and will always stand even when heaven and earth pass away. What will these scoffers say? 2 Peter 3, 4. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? You Christians, you fools, with your fa- the figment of your imaginations running wild with pie in the sky ideas of, you know, a happy ever after with Jesus coming for you. You've sure believed that for a long time, have you not? Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all these things continue as they were from the beginning. Do you see what they're saying? The only thing that you can count on is this universe, this material stuff around us, that which you can experience with your own senses. Yet the scriptures tell us to walk by faith, not by sight. The scoffer tells us, walk by sight, not by faith. Jesus hasn't returned yet. Let me tell you, in one sense, you can turn to the scoffer yet today and say, Jesus has returned. He returned in judgment, among other things, in A.D. 70 to wreak havoc on all who would deny and would not submit to his holy name. And he came and destroyed with such a fell swoop of devastation that the corpses lined the streets and there were not enough people alive to summon the manpower to bury them before they were consumed by the vultures overhead and... He is coming again, and he will come again and judge the living and the dead. And just as God has given us in the testimony of his word and history, proof positive of his sovereignty and lordship over your soul in this entire universe, he will yet exercise it again. There was a quote, I wish I could find it. Someone said that it doesn't matter so much if Armageddon will happen in our lifetime Everyone carries Armageddon around in their chest cavity. 
The idea being that you're appointed to every man once to die, and after that, the judgment. That's as much of a worrisome apocalypse as the final generation, whatever that might look like, whether in this time or in ours. So with this in mind, we preach the gospel. We preach the one-way truth and the life, the only means of salvation. We preach that there is hell to pay for those who refuse the testimony of salvation in Christ's blood alone. We stand on His holy word as the only point of reference, and we substitute nothing, nothing for our foundation. We could, if we were dumb, go back to you know, the testimony in Jeremiah's day, uh, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. The pharisaical appeal to the external and to the hypocritical that Jeremiah prophesied against in chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. And yet existed in some form in Jesus' day, where the Pharisees and scribes swore by the temple and put all their faith in the externals. These will not suffice. In fact, only in Christ is there a sufficient ground for our assurance, for our security, for our hope eternal, for our salvation. After all, heaven and earth, the temple, and all of the events that Jesus prophesied, they will speak to a passing away of the prior order, and our experience is subject to change in this life. But my words, Christ tells us, will not pass away. Jesus prepares His disciples with a second analogy. The days of Noah. After expounding what we are to learn from the picture of the fig tree, he opens up these verses in verse 36, expounding on the era of Noah's judgment and flood and what that means or can uh, show for his uh, time or the time of those in the generation of his hearers. But concerning that day, verse 36, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be left in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. As we look at the days of Noah, as an analogy that Jesus refers to, to prepare his disciples for these soon coming events, we see, first of all, uh, two things. Who knows, and when will these things happen? Jesus tells us in verse 36 in his disciples at the time, concerning that day and hour, No one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. If you go back, I believe it's in Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29. There is an admonishment for the people of God. It says, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things belong to you and to your children. Today, we are guilty of what man has always been guilty of, a sort of lust for understanding and knowing the secret things. Uh, knowledge that is easily attainable is boring, but that secret that is hidden away will search to no end to figure it out. Mankind has a sort of obsession to get to the bottom of things. I would submit to you, and if it's not checked by the Word of God, it is a desire akin to original sin, 
which is a desire to be omniscient. I can't rest satisfied until I know everything. This gets us into trouble in biblical interpretation sometimes because we write crazy books that try to identify newspaper headlines with certain prophecies in Scripture. And once they sell a million copies and you know, become irrelevant when they don't come to pass, then we dream up a new scheme. seems to be popular these days. It has been that way for a long time. But the Scriptures tell us to submit to God who alone is omniscient. There are certain things that He alone is privy to and has not revealed to us. And yes, it is a step of faith to trust our Father, but our Father is trustworthy. Jesus makes this, plain, this point so plain that He even uses Himself, and listen to this, as touching His humanity as an example of one who does not have complete knowledge of the future. Again, only I would submit to you as touching His humanity. There's an important theological point that comes in at this uh, stage in this passage here, in this single verse, which is the two natures of Christ. He was fully God and He was fully man. And depending on where you're reading and how the message of the Scriptures is framed, sometimes Christ is speaking or the Scriptures are speaking with reference to His humanity, in other places with reference to His divinity. In this case, I submit to you, it's with reference to His humanity, verse 36. But concerning the day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So how much hubris does it represent? How prideful and arrogant is a mere man to say he's got a handle on something that Christ himself, as touching his humanity, says is not for him to know. This is a message for us to remain humble and submissive to the Word of God. John Calvin was a disciplined theologian for many reasons, but one reason he was, and he was famous for this, is he said, when Scripture is silent, so are we. And in some ways, as I judge it anyway, his commentary is more valuable than many of the bestsellers that flood the shelves of our you know, bookstores today. Why? Because he tried to hold himself to, that, to this truth, that the things that are secret belong to God, the revealed belong to us and to our children, and there are certain things that God alone is privy to, and we are to simply trust him with, with how that will look or what that will look like in the future. Nevertheless, there is seasons or there are indicators, generally speaking, that are there for the disciples to know. So Jesus is simply quantifying the degree of knowledge that the disciples will uh, have during these times. And I submit to you that stands for us today. We know that there is a judgment to come. We know that Christ will return. We know that our call is to faithfully occupy until that day. And we ought to be busy about the business as if Christ wouldn't return for another thousand years. Let Let me submit to you. Otherwise, that tendency to think, I'm, you know, know the day or the hour, it's got to be right around the corner, might influence us to change uh, the imperative in some way and to be lax about our duties to preach the gospel. Preach the gospel as if Christ would come tomorrow. Preach the gospel as if we have another thousand years. In other words, today is the day of salvation and uh, be a good steward. The rapture, we don't know when the rapture will happen. I met someone recently and I talked to him candidly and he said he had a dream 10 years ago, or I'm sorry, nine years ago that Christ would return in 10 years. And he said, I honestly, uh, that has influenced me not to have children. Any more children, he just has two. 
And I encouraged him to go to a different source to make that decision. Not a dream of when the end might occur, but the word of God. Our experience and our dreams, heaven and earth, will pass away. They're fleeting and we are easily deceived by those things. We go to the word of God and we see that he commands us to be busy about the Father's business, to be fruitful and to multiply, to raise children for the glory of God, even as some of you have experienced that great blessing this week. Three babies have arrived to this, to this small church even this week. I submit to you that's a better application of Scripture than a friend of mine who uh, d- has decided based on a dream that since the end is just around the corner, maybe he won't have any more children. Uh, secondly, under days of Noah, the event, the judgment of the flood of Noah's day was, I submit to you, an event oracle. It was an event that happened in history, but it was also, in a sense, the Word of God. This is a concept throughout Scripture. We see the same in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was an event oracle. It was a particular time in history where God's judgment visited the people, but it spoke beyond that day to a pattern of God's involvement, excuse me, with his people and with the unbeliever that we can see recapitulated, if you will, in the future. This is apparent in Jesus' words in Matthew 24. It's also apparent in our parallel text that we've touched on in 2 Peter. It says in 2 Peter 3 again in verse 5, For they deliberately overlooked this fact. Again, the scoffers overlooked this that the heavens existed long ago. The earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. That is, by the means of the word of God, judgment came in the days of Noah. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment, and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. I reference that text to underscore this point, that when God acts in history, it's not just to address the circumstances immediate at that time, but it's also a pattern of revelation to declare the type of interaction we can expect in the future. In the future, I submit to you, it will be like the days of Noah prior to Christ's second coming. We don't know the day or the hour, but we do know that it will come. And if we are not awake, if we are not alert, and if we are not managing the household well, as we see in the final picture, we will be caught flat-footed in some sense. Worst of all, those who are outside the ark Uh, in Noah's day, as the water begins to rise above their ankles, and we picture them perhaps banging on the hull, but that door had sovereignly closed. Only God could close it. Only God could open it. And when the day of redemption was finished, the door closed, and those who remained outside of the ark, the only way of salvation, received judgment. So it is with Christ. In Christ, the door, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he says. He is the door, and all who enter, enter by him. He is the ark, as it were, that bears us through the water of judgment that our sins deserved. That door is open through the proclamation of the gospel at this time. Yet the event oracle of the judgment of Noah foretells a day of its closing. It closes for each individual when they die, and no man knows the day or the hour or can number his days. 
it closes for all of mankind at his second coming, when God will uh, then judge the living and the dead. And so we look to these passages in Scripture, and we don't just study them as an interesting story, something of a Sunday school lesson, you know, to inspire our imaginations, what if we had been there? But we look to them as a pattern of God's involvement through history. We are in a similar situation in some principled sense. We need to take seriously the call of the gospel. We need to share with a sense of emergency to the unbeliever who does not know when he will die, that the way of salvation is open through Christ. Repent of your sins, come through the door, and be saved as in the days of Noah, where a remnant of just eight people were brought through waters of judgment unto repopulating the new heavens and new earth, as it were, you know, pictured in that account. Finally, there's a symptomatic unawareness that Jesus speaks to when he set, recalls the days of Noah and says, these days are just like what we see today. Those days are just like what we see today. And I submit to you, there's an application for our hour right now. Verse 39, speaking of those who are outside of the saving ark of Noah, they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Backing up to verse 38, it says, As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. Later he talks about regular day-to-day tasks, and uh, God interve- or God's intervention sovereignly coming and interrupting them. In verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, one left. Backing up a little, verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one left. In the book of Revelation, you see the buzzing, humming economy of Babylon pictured there. Uh, People are marrying and giving in marriage, there's wedding songs, the lights are on in the city, commerce is happening at a good steady clip. You know, the Federal Reserve has just issued, you know, a new bailout plan, and the companies that are too big to uh, fail, have a fresh, fresh influx of cash, and the last presidential candidate who said he would bring jobs you know, to this country has further centralized the economy, and you know, the crony capitalism is going along, and I only bring this up because it's so relevant for our day, is it not? Uh, t- you know, this is an election year, in case you haven't noticed. And if you haven't noticed yet, you surely will in a few months, as the rhetoric and the policies and the positions will reach a fevered pitch. How many of our presidential candidates this year do you think will say, you know, today is much like the days of Noah. There is only one way of salvation, not me, not my policies, not this government, not America, not secure borders, not cutting off immigration, not opening up, you know, the windows of opportunity through social welfare programs as a safety net to save those who can't help themselves. None of those are the way of salvation Yet there is a salvation, there is a true Messiah, there is a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. You know, looking at the, at the landscape of this country, we have put our salvation in all these scoffers who do not use the Word of God as their point of reference, but they use everything else you could imagine. False ideas of security, faith in a strong military, my plan for salvation, a historical appeal you know, to this preeminent, almost divinely inspired document called our Constitution. All these things, if they take a prior position and our security and assurance above the Word of God, they are the tools, they are the message, they are the word of the scoffer. The Word of Christ alone is the fixed point of reference upon which salvation can be preached along which hope for the future can be assured. And there is no other. 
These days are like the days of Noah. People seem to care only about the mundane promises of luxury in this life. It seems like our political class is intent on restoring the American dream. And if we can just get that much, then we've received, you know, then we've arrived at the panacea of utopian dreams. Oh, jobs, 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 security, security, security. We see all these things. What, what is this? I submit to you this is symptomatic unawareness of our plight. It will be in those days, just as it was in the days of Noah. They will be drinking and marrying carrying on about the normal affairs of life, worried most about what they were planning to do on the weekend, how they will amuse themselves and reach their career goals. What happens when we are stultified, when we are in a stupor, because all our affections are in these temporal, passing pursuits that aren't ultimately rooted in God's Word? Well, it has a deceiving and a dulling effect on the consciousness of the participant. He begins to be oblivious to the signs of repentance and, there's a, and the truth that we must place our faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone. So let us not be subject to these influences, brothers and sisters in Christ, pursuing life's pleasures and practical demands and promises, temporally speaking, alone, such that we lose the uh, alertness and our call to announce that today is the day of salvation. We must, in our day, stay awake. Finally, and in closing this morning, household management is the third picture. Perhaps we won't explore this in its fullness this morning because our time is short. But listen to this third analogy that Jesus uses to prepare His disciples for the days to come. He says in verse 44, Therefore, or 43, But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household, to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes." Truly I say to you, he will set over or him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Beware of the stultifying effects of the familiarity. Be mindful, brothers and sisters, the message yet stands for us today that God has called us as managers over His house, if you will. He has delegated to us, His disciples by spiritual lineage, the great commission of Matthew 28, where He commands the eleven there on the mountain, directs them after they had worshipped Him, assuring them first that all authority in heaven and earth had been given given to Him to go and make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to teach him all that he has commanded them. And the promise is, Behold, I am with you, I am with you to the end of the age. So yes, there is difficulty, there is challenge, and there is waiting, and there is a goal yet to be reached, the end of the age. There is an end of the age that was coming to fruition at this time, and there is the end of this age that will come to fruition, I submit to you, at the second coming of Christ. Christ. 
when again the ark door of gospel opportunity will ultimately close. All the elect will have been gathered into the storehouses and then yet remains is the only thing that remains is for those who are in Christ to be ushered into the glorious promise of eternity and those who are outside of the ark to be cast into the lake of fire forever where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. But the message, the charge to the disciples and to us listening in is household management. To steward well our responsibility in this meantime. To proclaim the gospel. To be faithful. To stay alert. To stay awake. And to make great use of the means that God has provided, especially His Word, as we endeavor to do this morning, so that we can be bolstered in our understanding, our courage, our faithfulness, and our patience. This final day of reckoning will come. It's a message all throughout. It's laced throughout the Gospel of Matthew. There are many who want to preach a nicer version of the Gospel these days, quote-unquote nicer But if it is deceptive and leads people away from the truth, it is the greatest abuse indeed. The gospel as it truly occurs in the scriptures foretells a day when there will be judgment and reckoning. All the way back in the words of John the Baptist, chapter 3, verse 10, he said, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Christ himself echoes this theme in the parables that we find in chapter 13. And he declares a day of reckoning that will soon come. And he says, The Son of Man will send His angels, verse 41, and they will gather out of His kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be gnashing, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. I submit to you that this is the punctuation point, the exclamation point at the end of so many of the messages in Matthew 28. And it ought to be the exclamation point in our message to the unbeliever today. Even in our text today in this fifth discourse, toward the end, there's the final judgment prophesied and the, judgment, and the power to judge uh, laid out in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, in chapter 25. But how does it close? Verse 45, then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you, did it not, or, uh, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Let us be awake to the truth of the gospel, that there is a way of salvation in Christ alone, and this way leads to life eternal. And any other substitute, any other point of reference, ends in the lake of fire. Let us close this morning in prayer. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would find us faithful, occupying until you come, when you either visit this land with a a judgment in the course of history, or when you return to judge the living and the dead, and to gather all of your elect into the storehouses of glory. Lord, we repent if we have exhibited some of that stupefying behavior, some of that dullness and lethargy, of heart and mind, where we let the cares of the light of life come in, Lord Jesus, like thorns that choke out the seed. We pray that you as our divine husbandman would pull those thorns, that we would be fruitful, not just a tree with leaves, but indeed with fruit, that we would stand in the day of adversity, not swayed by the deceptive context of the scoffer, but instead boldly staking our claim if we're the only one we know 
even if we're the only one we know, on the authority and the sufficiency and the surety of your word alone. I pray that this message, Lord Jesus, would be on our lips, on our heart, and through our actions, presented and proclaimed to the world, who is carousing like they were in the days of Noah, seeking temporal pleasures and losing their soul. Let us be about the business of witnessing to them that there is no profit if you would gain this whole world and all of its materialistic promises and lose your soul. There is indeed a day of reckoning. May we live in light of it so that we can champion the truth as you did, declaring the message to the kingdom to all who have ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.